0: Today, we are going to be reading from Psalm 130. Psalm 130. Hear the word of the Lord. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. Over the last few weeks, we've been considering, um, as a congregation, our position in this in-between space. We're in the midst of a pastoral transition, in case you're new and don't know. And while this time of transition is, you know, relatively short, some churches spend years in transition or, you know, months and months and months, we've got a month uh, to deal with it. Um, And this in-between time or, you know, what we've been calling the liminal space is crucial for our lives as God's people. And, you know, I suppose that we could have worked it out so that, you know, Matt's last Sunday would be one week and the next first Sunday would be the next week. And I, I wasn't in on all those decisions. So I don't know how, I don't know what the inner workings of that were. But regardless, from before the foundation of the world, the Lord has seen fit to give us this space, this transition, this in-between time, and he has something good for us here, not just in the future, yes, for sure in the future, but here in this in-between time. Now, what we've said is that all throughout the Bible when God leads his people into the liminal spaces, into the liminal times, whether it's, you know, wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, or, um, you know, 70 years in exile, or the 400 years-ish in the intertestamental period, and I could go and name many, many more, God has a specific purpose for doing that. His main goal for leading his people into those times, into those places is this, to make them holy, which is to say, to sanctify them. And that is his goal for us in this time as well, to make us into the kind of congregation that is worthy to bear his name in this world. And as Clark said, We need to be that kind of people who bear his name, who are worthy to bear his name in this world. And so this is our last week in transition, Lord willing. I don't know. (laughs) That's the plan anyway. Speaking of which, uh, if you were here two two weeks ago, um, you know, speaking of plans, I, I was saying how, you know, uh, as, as disenchanted people living in the modern age, you know, we trust in all this technology to do all these things for us. And I was going on a flight after, uh, after the sermon, and I was, me and my family were going to Colorado, and uh, I, you know, I don't even think to, you know, assume that some sort of sky witch is going to come and mess with the instrumentation, and uh, the technology is going to do fine. I just don't even think about it. It was a terrible flight. Just need to let you know. It was, I, I was chastened. Uh, many... Many vomit bags were filled uh, due to the turbulence. So I just thought I, I made a public proclamation, I should repent publicly as well. Now, anyway. Lord willing, this is our last week of transition. And once again, we're going to take up one of the Psalms of Ascent to guide us into what God wants us to learn in this in-between time. And remember that the Psalms of Ascent are a series of 15 consecutive Psalms, starting in Psalm 120, going to Psalm 135. And these were the songs that were eventually cobbled together by an editor in order to, as sort of like a song book that the pilgrims would sing as they left their homes wherever they were in Israel and came to to Jerusalem for the three mandatory feasts of the year and so as they were in that in-between time as they were not home but not yet to the temple they would sing these songs and rehearse these truths because these are the truths that they most needed to understand and most needed to internalize and metabolize in order to stay safe in this in-between time. So today we take up Psalm 130. And here, in this psalm, the Lord wants us to remember. The Lord wants to teach us in this in-between time, just as he taught the author of Psalm 130, a single, beautiful, powerful lesson. And that is, he wants to teach his people how to wait. Now, waiting on the Lord is, you know, perhaps one of the most difficult tasks we have to do in the liminal time, in the liminal space, and that's especially true for those of us who grew up in America. Like, we are born and bred for efficiency, and any amount of waiting, any amount of idleness feels to us like, you know, committing the chief sin of our culture, namely unproductivity. Is that the word? Non-productivity. What is the word? Non- you know what I mean. Okay, moving on. And that's especially true of our spiritual lives, right? Like, if you remember my story that I told in the first week of these, uh, of these uh, sermons, um, I told you about how I had been in a season of profound darkness and confusion for like two years. And almost everyone to whom I confessed that had a plan for me to get out of it. You know, read this book, come to this church, pray this prayer, etc., etc. And nobody ever just told me, wait. Just settle down into the weeds and wait. Nobody ever told me that. And so of all the lessons we have to learn in this liminal time, perhaps the most difficult is this, wait on the Lord. So why must we learn to wait? There's two things. Number one, we must learn to wait because it reminds us of the Lord's forgiveness. That's point number one. Point number two, we must learn to wait because waiting teaches us to hope in God. So number one, waiting reminds us of the Lord's forgiveness. So the psalmist begins by announcing like the life context that he's in as he prays this prayer. In verse one and two, he says, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. The psalmist cries out from the depths, and that is a very common phrase in the psalms and in the rest of the Old Testament. It's kind of like shorthand for the depths of the sea, which you also see quite often. It's a cry that arises out of anguish out of fear, out of terror, out of confusion, out of doubt. The depths refer to the churning waters of endless troubles in which the psalmist finds himself, and he cries out because he is nearly submerged. And James Mays uh, is a commentator. In this commentary on the psalm, he says it so beautifully. Um, He says, to be in the depths is to be where death, Prevails instead of life as prospect and power, where the authentic word about existence is, "I am lost." That's what the depths feels like. I hope I'm not the only one who knows this feeling in here. Okay, H- Amen. Good. And um, it's precisely in the depths that it appears to the psalmist that he has lost God's loving attention. It it must feel to him like the Lord has turned his gaze elsewhere, has, has turned his ear to someone else because the very next thing he says is, you know, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. So this is the experience of the depths or to put it in the language that we've been using, this is the experience of the liminal space. The confession here is, I am lost. Now, for many reasons I already covered in the first sermon of this series, we evangelicals have kind of, you know, an allergic reaction to this experience. We we prize certainty. We prize optimism. We're practical people. And therefore, anytime we feel as if we've been swept into the depths, our natural response is, get to work on it. Now, that's not all bad, it's fine, but I'm I'm emphasizing something different here. So we wanna just get to work on it. There must be a prayer to pray, a conference to attend, a song to sing that will fix us, or perhaps we just go to work on rooting out the the hidden sin, the, the unconfessed sin that has caused us to slip into the depths. Like, not aware of it, but it must be there. Or maybe it's not. As I said the first week, we tend to interpret this state, the state, as as this psalmist calls it, the depths as a threat to our union with Christ and not a legitimate pathway toward union with Christ. And that is a dangerous posture to have assumed. So let me say it again. The depths, the liminal space, the place where all we feel is lost and disoriented, to be lodged in this place where death seems to prevail instead of life, that is a normal and expected experience in the Christian life. And let me belabor this point because, like, we are all in need of the strongest possible arguments to get this into our hearts. Like, these—just think about this. First of all, these words that we just read from the Psalms— These are God's inspired, breathed words. This is our our prayer book as a church. He gave us these words to put in our mouths and say back to him. So he's acknowledging in doing so that this is a legitimate experience. This is an experience that you will find yourself in at one point or another. If that's not enough, let's not forget that our Lord Jesus spent Hours of agonizing prayer in the depths in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, the question is, why does this happen? Why do we find ourselves in the depths? And our go-to answer is, of course, sin. And the truth is, to be fair, there are psalms, just to stick with the psalms, there are psalms that acknowledge that reality. Our transgressions can certainly plunge us into the depths. Poster boy for this is Jonah, right? He he cries out from the depths, which is to say in the belly of the fish, he cries out for mercy, and he acknowledges that that predicament was caused by his flight from the call to preach in Nineveh. But being plunged into the depths is not necessarily caused by sin. Because look at what the psalmist says next in verse 3. He says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Now I don't know if you I don't know if you saw the, the power of this. Listen, like, after, after he cries out from the depths, what we might expect is the psalmist to cry out for forgiveness for whatever sin plunged him into those waters. But look carefully, like, he doesn't ask for forgiveness. Rather, he meditates on the fact of God's forgiveness. He says, I'm in the depths, I cry out, don't be deaf to my cry. If you marked iniquities, who could stand? He doesn't say, heal me of my iniquities. He says, if you marked iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? That's important. Now listen, this word mark translates that same Hebrew word that we looked at a couple of weeks ago in Psalm 121. Remember, if you were here in that Psalm, the the word was translated as keep. So mark and keep, same Hebrew word underneath it. Remember we said, you know, the Lord is your keeper. He will keep you from all evil. He will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And in that sermon, we talked about how keeping indicates not only protection, but a constant attention, which never slumbers, which never sleeps. So if you bring that sense to this psalm, you start to see the weight of the psalmist's confession. Keep has the sense of, you know, close attention, while Mark has the sense of a a judge with a clipboard scrutinizing a performance. And so taken together, this would result in a crushing relationship between God and this psalmist. Who could stand under such conditions, he says. But with you, O Lord, there is forgiveness. With you is forgiveness, as if forgiveness was an agent at Yahweh's side, ready to go forth at his word and do his work. So, the psalmist is crying out from the depths. He does not cry out for forgiveness, but rather ruminates on the assumed forgiveness of the Lord. So, what is this telling us? It's telling us that the Lord is not a scrutinizer. He's not the angry judge, but rather the Father full of compassion for his beloved who forgives before we even ask. Not because we deserve it, because no one deserves it, but because he is good and he has committed himself. To our good, so you put all of this together. The psalmist finds himself in the anguish of the depths, apparently unable to rescue himself, unaware of any sin that might have sent him there. And instead of trying to, you know, fix the situation, he meditates in wonder on the gracious and loving character of God. And that is what the pilgrims, making their way from the home, their home to the temple. That's what they wanted to rehearse. That's what they wanted to remind themselves of as well. Through all the dangers and the toils and the snares that they might encounter on their way to Jerusalem, they wanted to remember that with the Lord, there is forgiveness, and they could count on his gracious ways toward them. And so, when we find ourselves in this liminal space, these in-between realities, when we are disoriented and full of doubt and near to drowning, we too must remember the Lord does not mark iniquities, nor does he keep our sin. He has us here for our good, for our sanctification, not to harm us, not to push us below the surface of those fearful waters, but for our good. So the question I have now is if it's not sin that plunged the psalmist into the depths of the into the depths of the sea, and therefore confession is, is not required here, then what is the purpose of his time in those fearful waters? What is the Lord calling him to do, and by extension, us to do while in the depths, while in the liminal space, while in that place. Well, that brings us to our second point. Waiting teaches us to hope in God. The answer, what does he want us to do? What does he want us to learn in those places? Verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. So the psalmist waits. Now, if you look through the whole Old Testament, frankly, the New Testament as well, this word, wait, is basically a synonym for the entire Christian life. It's, it's that crucial of a concept. But unfortunately, our English word for wait can actually confuse us as we try to interpret what the psalmist means. What does it mean to wait? Because for us, to wait is to exist in sort of like this non-time. Nothing is happening while we wait. It's a, it's a passive activity. To us, waiting indicates waste. It's wasted time. Now, as I mentioned, we went to Colorado for vacation last week, and outside of one of our hotels was, a, was like an Alpine theme park that they wait till all the snow melts, and then they set it up, and it's got slides and alpine coasters and ropes courses, all that sort of thing, and the kids really wanted to do it. And I I really wanted them to have that memory. And so, you know, I bought us tickets, and we got in line for the alpine slide. And we waited for 10 minutes, and we waited for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 minutes, and then we were finally next in line for the alpine slide. And that's when it got shut down because of fickle mountain weather. Apparently it can't be wet. Which at that point we were like, "Don't care. Send us up. <laughs> Give us a helmet and we'll be fine." You know, the wor- so They shut it down. The workers told us, don't worry, the Alpine coaster is still open. So we, they tell, we happen to be at the front of the line. And so then the back of the line, everybody starts rushing over there. So we rush over there as well because, you know, I want my kids to have these memories. Like this sounds fun. We're on the top of a mountain for crying out loud. This is beautiful. The Rocky Mountains are everywhere. I want them to have some fun. So we waited And we waited and we got to the place uh, when we finally got in line that we were in front of a sign that said, wait time from here, 60 minutes. So, okay, that's fine. That's fine. You know what? It's great. So we wait and we wait. We got to the sign that said, wait from here, 15 minutes. And then they called out, coaster is closed. Now there's lightning. (laughs) 15 miles away, but apparently they have protocols. I've just like, put us in a rubber suit and send us down I'm good I'm, good. I'm so tired of waiting at this point point. and so then the rain really starts coming and so they shut the whole park down and so you know we left to get lunch and you know they say when you buy the tickets you know because they live there and they understand the nature of mountain weather they're like no refunds for weather <laughs> and so it starts raining we decide to go get lunch we're waiting again until we could return and get our money's worth. So at this point, I'm despairing that my children are ever gonna have these memories that I'm hoping that they're gonna have, and, uh, but we returned. And at that point, the sun was shining, and we got back in line for the alpine slide in another 30 minutes, and finally, finally, it was our turn. The sun was shining, it was great. So we got on a little ski lift that t- takes us up. It's my, my kid's first time on a ski lift. I mean, they've never, they've never flown, they've never done anything, but it was great. We got like halfway up, fickle weather. It starts raining and now we're even higher and it's freezing and sleet is hitting us. And we get to the top, you know what they say? Cancelled, we're we're bringing a van up here. We're gonna take you back down. So by that point, it was like four o'clock. The park closes at five. I went to the ticket office, I tried to get a refund, which, you know, I did partially, um, because my kids were able to jump on a trampoline for two minutes, and so, you know, they charged us a good deal of money for that. Um, (laughs) It's the only thing without a line. Um, But as I laid my head down on the pillow that night, you know, I was deeply frustrated. The memories, of fun on this like once-in-a-lifetime trip were stolen from us. The entire day was spent waiting and none of it was spent doing anything for which we waited. And so every time I think about that, as I, as I laid my head down on the pillow that night, it felt to me like it was a wasted day. What did we do? We waited. It was a waste. And that's that's kind of how we think about waiting. It's non-time, nothing happens, we're passive. And ultimately a day spent waiting is a day wasted. But that's not what the psalmist means when he says, I wait for the Lord. If you go to the Hebrew dictionary and you look up this word for weight, you'll see a definition that at first is actually very confusing. It means something like to bind or to twist. And if you keep reading the definition, you'll see lots of references to ropes. So what's going on here? Well, this is a word that actually has its roots in ancient rope making. I don't know how ropes are made today in the industrial age. But in the ancient world, uh, in order to make a rope, three people used these rudimentary tools, and they would twist thousands of strands into a finished rope. And once that rope was complete, it was used to bind things together. It was used to pull cargo along the ground. And so consider that history as you hear the psalmist again. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits This is not a passive kind of waiting that we're used to thinking about. As the psalmist waits for the Lord in the midst of the depths, something mysterious is happening. In the waiting, a thousand strands of thread are being twisted together in order to bind this psalmist to the Lord. It's a cord of love that will draw us into a future promised by God, a future in which he will vindicate all wrongs, put everything back to right, swallow up death in the sea, and cast all our iniquities away. So we are not passive in waiting. We are being bound to the Lord. And you can see the intensity with which the psalmist waits. In fact, he repeats it twice in verse five. I wait more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. In case you missed it the first time. Now, as I've said before in other sermons, uh, you know, in a time when these manuscripts were being written and there was no bolding or highlighting or calling out or italicizing in order to draw attention to something. Hebrew poets used repetition to draw our attention to something. When something is repeated, you have to imagine the the Hebrew author jumping up and down next to it, waving his arms, saying, don't miss this. I wait for the Lord more than watchman for the morning. That means almost nothing to us. But in ancient times, cities were built behind walls, right, to protect them from invaders. And upon those walls were stationed watchmen who watched through the night for any approaching danger that might, that might destroy the city. And so make no mistake, in, in a world lit only by fire, Night was a fearful thing. In their minds, night was the time when criminals emerged. And not only in their minds, but in actual reality. The night was the time when darkness reigned, when robbers and thieves could come and steal and destroy. And so these watchmen, like everyone else, longed for those first bands of light to start appearing on the horizon because it indicated that the fearful night was passing and the bright morning was about to dawn. And this is how the psalmist waits while he is in the depths. Now, there is a word for this kind of posture of soul. And we see it in verses 7 through 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord. "'For with the Lord there is steadfast love, "'and with him is plentiful redemption, "'and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities.'" So to wait on the Lord is the same thing as hoping in the Lord. Hope is a confident expectation of the future centered on God's promises and character and acts. So perhaps the chief reason God sometimes leads his people into liminal spaces or into the depths why he allows his beloved to thrash in the depths of the sea is this, so that we may learn to hope in him. And I cannot overemphasize just how much we need hope in that liminal space and in that liminal time. Hope is what that finished rope twisted with a thousand strands looks like It is the foundation that is being established as we wrestle with doubt and confusion and the uncertainty of the in-between times. And that work is more important than any work that I know of. Like, listen to how the Apostle Paul says it in Romans chapter five. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoiced in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance and our endurance produces character and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Huh. Now notice that every movement of our lives, Paul says, is moving toward the production of hope in our chests. Every suffering produces character. Every character, every bit of character produces hope, and that hope does not put us to shame. Hope, ultimately, is what the pilgrims traveling up to the temple needed to remind themselves of. They needed to remi- remember, like, no matter how powerfully the depths of the sea churned around them, no matter how fearful that liminal time was and all the potential and dangers that the Lord was producing in them that which was more precious than anything, namely hope. Now, the psalmist also reminds himself and the congregation about the ground for their hope. This is not a naive hope, there is a ground for it. Notice the four in the middle of verse seven. It says, for with the Lord, there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. We hope, the psalmist says, we we hope because with the Lord, there is steadfast love. Now, this phrase, steadfast love, translates this Hebrew word for which there is no English equivalent. We don't have a word for this. And the word is hesed. Mmm, it's a tasty one, too. The word is hesed, and it signifies two different kinds of realities. First, it indicates a person who commits him or herself to another person without any basis in the prior relationship. I just met you. I'm going to die for you. No basis in a prior relationship. But the commitment is firm. Second, it indicates a person remaining committed to another when that person's actions would naturally result in the end of the relationship. And so the psalmist says, with the Lord is Hesed. Now, again, we don't have a word for this in English. We don't have a word to describe a relationship in which one party des- devotes themselves entirely to another and remains steadfastly committed to that other person, even when that other person's actions would naturally lead to a breaking of that relationship. But Probably the closest we can come in English is parental love, a love for, for, uh, of a parent for a child. I was just reflecting on this kind of with astonishment the other day um, at the kinds of frustrations and arguments that we, our kids have with us and we have with our kids and you know we get angry sometimes and so do they and we yell and say things we wish we hadn't and they yell and say things that they wish they hadn't and what astonished me is to realize that if such if, th- if, that, if those kinds of things happen in any other relationship it would be over like boss and employee, think, think about back to some of your, you know, family arguments. If that happened with your boss or your, your employee, like, it's over. You're going to find another job. If it happened with a friend, as often it do, as it does with family, it, it, it will be over. But no matter how many times our kids become frustrated with us, no matter how many times we say things that we don't mean, or worse, they say things that they do mean, we move past it. They're my kids. They belong to me whatever they do. And there's a hint of hesed in that. But even parental love doesn't quite capture the beating heart of hesed. Tragically, as some of us know, even parental love can fail. Even David in Psalm 27 knows this when he says, uh, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Who knows all the reasons a father and mother may forsake their children, but the promise on which we stake all of our hope is this. None of those reasons exists in the Lord. Though our mothers and our fathers forsake us, yet the Lord will take us in. And that is the ground of our hope. This is the sure confidence that the Lord is establishing in us while we are walking in the depths, while we wait in the depths, while we are flailing in the depths. And let me end by saying this. If you've ever found yourself in the depths, if you've ever wandered in the wilderness, then you'll know that it's precisely in that place where the Hesed of God is so hard to grasp, so um, difficult to believe. It's the nature of the depths that make us wonder whether God ever loved us at all. And so it is precisely in the depths where we need a psalm like this to remind us That whatever our hearts are telling us, hope is being established. And hope does not put us to shame. We must say to our souls, though the fearful night is upon you, morning will come. The Lord has set his unrelenting love upon you, O my soul, and none of your thrashings will ever cast it off. Remember, my soul. How the Lord Jesus, for love of you, dove headfirst into the churning depths of the sea of God's judgment to rescue his bride. His love for you ran so deep that in the process of bringing you out of the sea, he himself was submerged. My soul, look to Jesus and behold the Hesed of God for you. And set your hope on him. Because he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And as we do, remember, hope does not put us to shame. And what is it that we hope for? I can't put it any better. And I certainly can't improve upon the Apostle Paul's own words in Romans chapter 8. Starting at verse 18, he says... For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Our hope is that one day, Jesus Christ will tear back the clouds, descend in power at his second coming, and usher us in to this reality. And he has promised it. It is sure. And we may hope in it. Brothers and sisters, in this in-between time, let us wait on the Lord. With the Lord is unrelenting love And plentiful redemption And if we do we will find That out of the depths Our hope has been made sure And our hope will not Put us to shame Now We come to the table And it is a table that has been spread for us In the wilderness Jesus Christ hosts us at this table in our liminal time, in our depths. It is a time for us to remember who we hope in. These elements, if you'll remember, when Jesus Christ instituted this meal, he sat around a table with his disciples and he ate bread and he drank wine with them and he said, He lifted the cup and he said, I won't drink this again until I drink it with you anew in the kingdom of God. There are traces of the future in this meal. Therefore, it is a table of hope. So let us come and taste the hope of the Lord. Let us pray. our Father in heaven. If things go according to our plans next week, this liminal time will end. The new pastor that you have appointed for us, Nick, will come and take up his role in leading. And when he comes, may he find this congregation bound to the Lord in hope. May he find us wrapped with cords of love, looking to the horizon and anticipating the great future that you have for us. And we love you and pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you are one of God's beloved, then this meal belongs to you. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ.